Romans 3.25, you would, that'll be the first verse we're going to read today. We'll be looking at some other verses throughout the, uh, the morning if God sees fit to get us there. <clears throat> Romans 3.25, I thought this morning we might uh, talk a little bit about the uh, subject of satisfaction. Um A very important aspect to the gospel is the fact that uh, God is satisfied, that satisfaction be made, that justice be satisfied. Um, you know, the Bible says in uh, Isaiah 53, and I think it's verse 11, it says that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God will see the travail of Christ's soul, and that will be the satisfaction that God requires for his justice, uh, for the sins that his people has committed. Um, but, you know, whenever we think of satisfaction, not only does God's justice have to be satisfied, when we look at satisfaction we see that there's more to that satisfaction. We see that not only does God's justice have to be satisfied, but God also has to be satisfied in the outcome of what God's justice does. God has to be satisfied in the fact that Christ has died for his people, but he also has to receive satisfaction in the accomplishment of what his death did for his people. Maybe I can explain that a little bit different way and maybe be a little more clear. Christ dying for his people satisfied God's law and God's justice. Okay, His life fulfilled all the law on our behalf and it substituted for us. So therefore, all of our obedience was found in Christ's obedience. Our death that we deserved, the penalty for our sins, Christ took upon himself, and therefore we don't have to. So he substituted in our place as our sacrifice, so he became sin for us, and so he condemned sin in the flesh so that we wouldn't be condemned in the flesh. Therefore, God was not only satisfied in God in Christ's obedience, and now views Christ's obedience as our obedience, but also Christ's death on our behalf as our death, and so God is satisfied. So in the legality of everything, God is satisfied in the fact that Christ has uh, accomplished redemption for his people uh, and everything that was to satisfy justice. However, God also must be satisfied in the fact that everyone for whom Christ died will receive the promises that was made in the covenant of God for which Christ died for his people and in turn those people would receive full pardon, full forgiveness, full redemption, full reconciliation, that they would be brought back to God and so... God must be satisfied in the, in the uh, legality and in the application 
of what Christ has done in Christ's work. So there is a lot to be said about the satisfaction of Christ and what he has done on our behalf legally. But brethren, we must understand that if all for whom Christ died does not come to Christ, then God will not be satisfied in that application. Therefore, Christ will be guilty and a failure of being the Savior of his people. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about how uh, how uh, we see this pictured in the Old Testament whenever um, whenever uh, uh, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and Joseph ended up becoming actually a ruler in Egypt. And his brothers didn't even know that he was alive, much less was now a leader in Egypt. And they came to try to get some uh, some food because there was a famine where him and his family was. They came to get some food, but whenever he came, Joseph recognized who they was and had them go back. And the only child or one of his brothers that had not came was Benjamin. And so he told, go back and get Benjamin and, and bring Benjamin to me and then I'll do it, give you anything you need. Well, whenever the boys went back, the oldest brother said, you know, let me take Benjamin. And uh, Isaac didn't want to give up Benjamin. That was his favorite child besides Joseph. And he, he didn't want to give up uh, Benjamin. And so the oldest brother said, I will be a surety for him. I will take him down there and I will make sure to return him to you. And if I don't return him to you, then I will be to blame. And that's a picture of Jesus. And Jesus in the, in the covenant has covenanted to bring all of God's people back to him. Matter of fact, he prayed in John chapter 17 that all that the Father has given me, I've lost none. I've not lost anybody. I've, I've, I have paid and purchased everyone and, and everyone will be brought back to him because he is the good shepherd and he will find all of his sheep and he will bring his sheep in with him. And so we see that there is this satisfaction not only in what Christ purchased for us in his blood, but also by what he does by his spirit in bringing all the children of God back to God. Bringing them in. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. They shall come to me. Believe upon me. And all that come to me I will in no wise cast out. And I will raise them up at the last day. Okay? So Christ is not only victorious in his work on the cross, but he's also victorious in making sure that all of his elect scattered across all of the world come to know him, believe on him, repent from dead works, and trust in him, and that he will, at the end, bring all those people back to God, where we came from before. If you remember also in John 17, Jesus, whenever he prayed, he said, thine they were. They were, all, they were God. We belong to God and we were given to Christ whenever he made Christ our surety. Whenever God uh, brought forth Christ as our surety in his manhood and gave us to Christ and put us into Christ, he 
that life that was in Christ, that life of ours that was in Christ and hid with God, that was us already there. Now, did we, you know, was we there in physical form? No. But we were there in seed. We were there in life substance. Just as Eve was in Adam as life substance before she ever was brought out and made manifest, she was there. And the Bible says that God blessed them and, and called their name Adam. Even before Eve was brought out, he said he blessed them. Who was them? Well, that was Adam and all of his posterity. It was Adam and his wife that was in him. And Christ had us in him. And so, for God to be satisfied, not only was all of justice needing to be satisfied, but the very act and, 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 and consummation of it all in why Christ made all the legality part satisfying is in the actual redemption or redeeming or bringing back of God's people. And so there are two sides to satisfaction. There's the legal side and there is the physical applicatory part of that in where Christ actually does satisfy God by bringing everybody back to Him. Now, the Bible speaks of this satisfaction in, a, in two or three different ways. It speaks of Christ's satisfaction as propitiation. As I know it's a big, long theological term, but it is a biblical word. We're going to talk about that today. Propitiation. It talks about that in atonement. It talks about satisfaction in reconciliation. And today, at least I'm going to try to, if the Lord is with us and, and with me to, to get through it, uh, I'd like to talk about the part of propitiation. How sat Christ makes satisfaction through propitiation and what this entails and what the scriptures teach about the propitiatory work of Christ. Now, um, I believe that this is very crucial to the gospel. Uh, if we don't have this, we don't have salvation. If Christ doesn't become our propitiation, if He doesn't become our satisfaction, then there is no salvation. And I'll explain that as we go further. Um, see, by obeying all the precepts of God's holy law as man, Jesus Christ fulfilled as our representative uh, everything that God required, and He brought in everlasting righteousness for us. Uh, by dying under the curse of the law, bearing our sins, bearing our penalty, bearing what we had actually done to transgress God, but never becoming sinful. God, Christ never became sinful. But bearing that in experiencing God's divine wrath, God's divine justice, He died as our substitute under the wrath of God. And so all of God's justice and all of God's wrath was satisfied. So Christ satisfied God in His, in, in His obedience. He satisfied God in His death. Therefore, God is satisfied with our obedience because Christ did it for us. And God is satisfied with our death because Christ died for us. Therefore, we have obeyed 
and we have died even though we have not actually done so. It has been laid to our account. That is the that is the doctrine of substitution, but that is also the doctrine of satisfaction. Christ satisfied everything being our substitute. Okay? So, Christ has put away the sin of God's elect by His own sacrifice. He has secured everything to make us complete before God. In Colossians, we read that we are complete in Him. That because we were in Him when He obeyed, because we were in Him whenever He died, therefore we obeyed and we died, therefore the claims and the, and the, and the price and everything that was there for God was, was accounted to our account. Okay? So He secured all of those things on our behalf. So Christ has satisfied the law and justice of God for us. And so we can be assured that that passage in Isaiah 55, 11 uh, is going to be true. God says he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That is a promise of God. What Christ did was enough to satisfy God. And so that's kind of why I've been saying here lately, and as I was mentioning earlier in the song selection, in that one passage that we talked about hiding, going to Mount Sinai to hide, and found that, that that Mount Sinai is not a hiding place. If Christ has satisfied everything that God's law and justice demands, then we should rest in that, because God, we know God, I mean, God tells us plainly, that I am satisfied with Christ's work. But we also see that God tells us that He is not satisfied with our work. The Bible says that all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags, right? He says that, that, that none of us can keep the law of God. That that which is of the flesh is flesh, and it cannot please Him. So when God is telling us to us, this is a sense, in sense, saying, God is saying, they that are of the flesh are flesh, and those things of the flesh cannot please me. So anything that you do in the flesh cannot please me. But what does please him? What does satisfy him? The only thing that satisfies him is his righteous servant, Jesus. By my righteous servant, he shall justify the many. Why? Because he shall make him. Matter of fact, just turn there, hold your finger there in Romans. I wasn't going to do it, I just was going to quote the Isaiah passage, but I don't want to miss anything there. I know we've been there several times recently, but in Isaiah 53, let's start at verse 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we already have the promise here that all the work that Christ is, is doing on our behalf in the work on the cross, in his life, and on the work on the cross, is going to prosper. It's not going to fail. It's not going to come up short. There's not going to be one person that it doesn't cover. Okay? 
Look at verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. Okay? The reason that we are justified is because of the work of Christ on our behalf by dying in our place. It is by his blood that we have been justified. We are justified by the work of Christ, by his faithfulness to God. Not our faithfulness to God, not our faith in Christ Jesus. That's not what justifies us. Our faith doesn't justify us before God in the legal sense at all. Our faith in Christ is a byproduct or is a product of the salvation and the fact that we have been justified. Abraham believed in God and what God said because he was already justified before God. We know that to be true because God had already given Abraham faith before Abraham ever actually believed in Christ. Abraham believed God because he was justified by Christ. And God gave him that faith. We believe on Christ because we have been justified of God. All the justified ones will be given the faith of Christ, to believe upon Christ. But that belief on Christ isn't what justifies us. Christ justified us. His faithfulness, His work in the cross and in salvation, that's what justified us. And that's what He's saying here. My righteous servant. There's only one righteous servant. We are not righteous servants. We are not good and faithful servants. The only good and faithful servant is Jesus Christ. When we enter in and we hear, Well done, thy good and faithful servant, we are going to hear that because it is referring to and pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. We did not get in because we were good and faithful servants. Verse 12 says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he is numbered among the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, keep that in mind. He made intercession for the transgressors, meaning that he met them in between. To, make, to be an intercessor is a go-between, someone who is a go-between. If I intercede on your behalf, that means I am a go-between between you and somebody else. What's another word that we use that means intercessor? Somebody that goes between two parties. Y'all know? There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. A mediator, an intercessor is a mediator. An intercessor is someone who goes before somebody else in the place of somebody else. He has been the intercessor. So that means there is a intercessory work that is done on behalf of those down here and in between the one that's up there. So Christ has interceded on behalf of those down here so that those down here might be accepted by or satisfied by 
the one up here. And the one up here, Jesus now becomes the promise so that these down here will be satisfied in what He has done. And no longer looking at what they do down here. (coughs) See, satisfaction entails the work of Christ on our behalf legally so that God is satisfied with us and it also is a work in our heart so that we are turned around and satisfied in the work of Christ and what the gospel says that Jesus is enough. What Jesus did on our behalf is enough to satisfy God. Therefore, we now are satisfied or given rest. That's another term that we use for that. We are given rest, and so now we are satisfied that we no longer have to go to our dead works to try to satisfy God, which we never could have done. But we now are satisfied in the work of our Savior on our behalf. We're satisfied. Now, we don't have to be satisfied for God to have satisfaction towards us. Okay, God's satisfaction towards us is perfect. We don't always find Christ's work satisfactory. Okay? Because we often fail and we try to resort back to religious works, dead works, right? But that is one of the things that God gives us whenever He quickens us, whenever He gives us spiritual understanding. He gives us to be satisfied with the gospel and what it says. And no longer going back to the law. And Mount Sinai is a hiding place, as we sing. And so Jesus now has been the intercessor between the two parties. Those who have broken the law, the lawgiver and the justice and the judge who the law is indignant, as we sing, the indignant law of God that will not pardon iniquity, that will not bend, that will not turn a blind eye, that indignant law and that lawgiver, Jesus now becomes the go-between. He now becomes the mediator. And he mediates between the two. The ones who have broken the law and the one who has given the law and the demands of uh, and the condemnation and the and the justice that is found in that law <clears throat> to be executed. <clears throat> Jesus now is the go-between. And so Jesus must do something to appease the one who demands justice, but he also has to become the very person for whom he's trying to get God to appease, be appeased with. The only way that God can appease, be appeased is that justice be satisfied. And the only way that justice can be satisfied is that death must take place. The wages of sin is death. Death is the, is the wage for sin. That is the penalty for sin. The only thing that God is going to be satisfied with is for His wrath to be poured out, and that that death be experienced, and Christ is our trend, uh, is our uh, intercessor. He is our mediator of that. Now, this satisfaction that Jesus does, this interceding that Jesus does, this word that we're going to look at today, this propitiation that Jesus does on our behalf, this is found throughout Scripture. 
Now, this word uh, propitiation that we want to look at, and go ahead and turn back to Romans 3 and verse 25. It's only found three places in, in, in Scripture, the actual word in our English uh, word, propitiation. It's only found three places in Scripture. Romans 3.25 is one of them. <clears throat> but let's look at it because it is actually talked about all through uh, Scripture. In Romans 3, verse 25, it says, Whom God has set forth, and we're talking about Christ here. It says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remissions of sin that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, this, uh, this word propitiation here. Webster defines this as an act of appeasing wrath or conciliating the favor of an offended person. The act of making propitious. Okay? But at the first of that definition is kind of really the, the easiest way to remember this. To propitiate means to appease wrath or to turn wrath away. To appease it. Okay? Uh, is, is to appease that wrath. If somebody is wrathful and somebody does something to calm that person down where they no longer are wrathful towards that person, that is propitiatory work. Okay? They have been propitiated. That means that that person that was offended, that was wrathful, full of wrath towards another person, is now satisfied and is no longer angry or wrathful at that person. Okay? That's what the word propitiation means. Webster goes on and he says this, In theology, the atonement or atoning sacrifice offered to God to assuage his wrath or to appease his wrath. That word assuage means to appease. To appease his wrath and render him propitious to sinners, Christ is the propitiation for the sins of men. So, the word propitiation means at its very core, it means to appease or to turn away wrath. As we dig into the scriptures though, and we see what the biblical definition of propitiation is, is we see that it is found often through scripture to mean mercy. <clears throat> mercy. Matter of fact, the word means mercy seat in the Old Testament. This word propitiation. Um, <clears throat> we find this word in Exodus 25. Turn with me if you would to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, look at verse 21 with me. <clears throat> now this is talking about the, um, the Ark of the Covenant here. It says, And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee. Matter of fact, let's back up just a few, few verses here so we can see what this is talking about. Let's go back up to uh, verse 19. <clears throat> It says to make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on... Now, everybody know what I'm talking about about the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you, if you haven't studied your scriptures, maybe you've at least watched uh, Indiana Jones. You know what I'm talking about. 
right? The Ark of the Covenant was the box that God directed uh, Moses to make to carry around the Ten Commandments. And eventually they ended up putting in a bowl of manna and uh, Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, that was all put in the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark, God commanded them to make. Matter of fact, the preceding verses to this is God commanding them how to make it. Um, but it was to be made by a specific design, and they had to follow it specifically and follow God's uh, God's uh, um, detailed way of making this ark, this this box. Okay, and this was to be carried around, and everywhere they went, this thing went with them. And this ark, it said, whenever they built before the permanent tabernacle was built. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, whenever they were going all around, and the and it was made up of a tent, <clears throat> the ark was always in what was called the holy of holies. The tabernacle was divided up into different sections, and there was one section called the holy of holies, and there was a veil that separated the holy of holies from the outer court, from the inner tabernacle part, and, and where the priests did their daily sacrifices. But in the Holy of Holies, that's where the high priest went in once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in with the, with the Paschal Lamb and he would sacrifice that Lamb for the whole nation. And the blood of that Lamb was sprinkled on the top of that ark, which was called the Mercy Seat. And it was just a solid bar of gold that made up the lid of that ark. So whenever they opened that mercy seat was the lid, they opened that up and that's how they got into the inside of that ark to put in the tablets and the manna and the rod of budded. The lid of that was called the mercy seat. And that is where the blood was sprinkled from that paschal lamb that was sacrificed every year now, it was for the Day of Atonement, and it was for the sacrifice of atonement. It was the blood of the atonement. And that word atonement, we're going to look at that, Lord willing, maybe next week or, or later. We're going to look at that word because it also has to do with satisfaction. It has to do with God being satisfied. The word atonement, if you break it up, at one meant. Okay? It means to, it means being at one with. Okay? To, it means to be brought in and to be one is satisfied with. If we're at one, what does that mean? There's no confrontation between us. If we've been at one, uh, then that means that there is no friction between us, that we are, are bonded together and there's no problems, right? So, <clears throat> that's what we're talking about here is this golden ark. And it says here, it says, And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, that word mercy seat there is propitiation in Hebrew, okay? Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof, and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above Upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, 
and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, I want to just pause here, brethren, and make a few observations, at least it's been brought to my mind here, about this thing. Number one, as I said, the mercy seat is the place where the blood of the atonement was put. Okay? And we have been told in Romans, keep your place there in Exodus, but back in Romans it said that whom God, Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. See, Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our mercy seat. We'll see that there's other places in Scripture that's going to say that here in a minute. But Christ is our mercy seat. So in the picture of that ark, and of course everything surrounding that, we see is a picture and a work of Christ. But that one particular thing, that solid beam of gold that was the lid there, the mercy seat, that is a picture of Christ Jesus. And that mercy seat, he says, look there in verse 20, uh, 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. On top of, over the ark. And it says in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. God is going to commune with men above the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. And what's below? The testimony of God, which is the law of God, which stands and condemns all mankind. The people of God are below the mercy seat. They are found in the commands of God that are broken. The commands of God that are in that ark was to be carried around everywhere they went and the ark of God was displayed before the children. Whenever they went somewhere, the ark always went ahead of everyone uh, that was in Israel as they marched. And it was to be carried a certain way. It was to be carried by certain men. It was to be carried with certain kinds of poles. And if you look at those things up above, it's supposed to be certain kinds of rings, a certain size, a certain overlay. It was, everything was in detail because it pictured the work of Christ. It pictured His people. It pictured the work of Christ for His people. And that ark with the Ten Commandments in there was a testimony of God to Israel all the time that here's my law that you cannot keep. You are always unworthy, always enabled to keep righteousness. Therefore, the mercy seat is there. And the only way that I will commune with you is above the mercy seat, where the blood will be sprinkled. I will commune with you through the mercy seat. I am satisfied by the mercy seat. Therefore, I will commune with you 
through the mercy seat. The only way that you have communion with me is through the mercy seat. The only way that my glory will come down and you will see me is through the mercy seat. See, God made it where the mercy seat would be above the ark. Now that tells me a couple of things. That tells me, number one, that Christ is that mediator between the broken law, which is us, and God, who is holy. Christ is the intercessor. He is the mediator. He is the go-between. Between God's glory that comes down from above and our brokenness of, of the law, which is below, Christ is found right there in the middle. But it also tells me this, that Christ and that bar of gold being pure gold, meaning that there is no impurities found in it. The Bible, Jesus said that uh, Satan has, has, has come and he's found nothing in me. He told the religious leaders, who have you can find anything in me? You can't find any sin that's in me. I've not seen. You've never seen any sin. The Bible says that he is as a lamb without spot, spot or blemish. He was a perfect, holy, righteous man. And there was no spot found within him. That golden bar represents Christ and his humanity as divine and as perfect man. He is perfect and holy. The only way that that could be the mediator between God and man was the man, Jesus Christ, who became our mercy seat. And the only way that God could be satisfied with us who have broken his law is for there to be propitiation between us. There had to be an appeasement of wrath. See, if the mercy seat were taken away and just God's broken law there, if God comes down and comes down to that ark, He's going to come and He's going to crush everything below it. His glory will come and it will consume everything. But yet that perfect, holy, righteous Lamb of God was our propitiation. He turned away God's wrath. He propitiated God's wrath. God was satisfied in the work of Christ. Therefore, His wrath was turned away from us and turn to Christ. Whenever the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, God came down, consumed that with His glory, consumed that, and the mercy seat is the one that absorbed all of that. The mercy seat was the place where God came down and dwelt and, and, and communed with the people. It was there and only there. God would not do it any other way. And God will not do that any other way. God will not accept your attempts to be righteous. He will never do that. He has only formulated one way to commune with people, His people. Now, we are His people, and He has loved us with an everlasting love. He has he is set Christ forth as the propitiation before the foundation of the world. Therefore, that's why there is never any wrath that was to come upon us. The Bible says we were not appointed unto wrath. Why? Because we have from the very moment that God ever brought us as a person or as a, as a people and given us to Christ, our head, our representative, our mediator, our surety, whenever that was in eternity that that took place, that union 
He has been our propitiation. Because Christ stood as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He stood as the propitiation. Meaning that he stood as the representative between God and man before the foundation of the world. Therefore, there was a relationship between God and man before the foundation of the world. There was an eternal vital union. There was a union there. Why? Because God had given us to His Son, had placed us in Him. And He had blessed us with all spiritual blessings and loved us with an everlasting love. Why? Because He loved His Son. Because He had blessed His Son and given Him all the blessings. And therefore, because we are in Him, we receive all the blessings. But granted, those blessings would not have come to us apart from the fact of Christ being our mediator, our intercessor, our go-between, that mercy seat. The place where God shows mercy was in Christ Jesus. See, that's how we got mercy. So he says here, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. See, God isn't going to come down below and commune with us as we are. He's only going to commune, commune with us as we are in Christ. See, He's not going to accept anything in this old flesh. That's why this flesh is eventually going to die. This flesh is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. This flesh is corrupt. This flesh, this old man, this old nature is full of sin and it never will inherit the kingdom of God. And while we are yet vessels of clay at this moment that has that perfect, beautiful, new creation, that Spirit of God in us, we are treasures and earthen that those treasures and earthen vessels. While we may be that, that earthen vessel is not getting to heaven and it cannot please God. Ever. And so we have to put that away. It has to go away. It never will inherit. And that's why God designed the ark as it was. God is never going to come down and dwell and commune with sinners, breakers of the law, as breakers of the law in their selves. He's only going to do that through the mediator. Above the mercy seat. On this side of mercy. On this side of grace. On this side. The divine side. He's going to be looking at us through the mediator. Jesus Christ. He said, I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are on the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, go back to go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 again. It says, whom God has set forth. That word set forth there means to set up. To put forward. To prearrange. God has set forth. If I set something forth, it means I have already got it. And I prop it up or I put it up as something. Okay? 
God had already, before the foundation of the world, set Christ up to be the propitiation for us. Christ is our mercy seat. He's the only place that God will meet with sinners. He is the only place that God will receive us and bless us. We often hear in modern Christianity, people say, just come as you are, God will, God will receive you as you are. Now, I will say this, whenever we come to Christ, we can't clean ourselves up. Whenever we come to Christ and believe upon Christ, God doesn't accept us because we clean ourselves up or make ourselves right. So, you know, we don't have to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop doing whatever before God will save us. God saved us in Christ Jesus when we were yet sinners. Now, that doesn't say that once we've been saved that God might not change all those things that we do. Keep us from doing those things. But what I am saying is this, is there is no cleaning up to come to Christ Jesus. We come to Christ Jesus as a sinner because God has sent Jesus to be the Savior of sinners. But to say that God will commune with us as we are, apart from Jesus, is never true. The only way that God communes with us is because He has set forth Christ to be the propitiation to declare His righteousness. See, we can't come to God and declare our righteousness. We must have another righteousness declared on our behalf. So Christ, therefore, becomes the satisfaction of God because His righteousness is the one declared, not ours. For the remission of sin. See, our sins can only be remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says... Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no removal of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Who was the one who shed the blood? Christ Jesus. Where was the blood sprinkled? On the mercy seat. Where was mercy found? When the mercy seat held the blood. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. God then communed with men and showed mercy upon the children of Israel when the blood was on the mercy seat. See, the blood wasn't on us because our blood would never, ever, ever atone for anything. But Christ's blood did. So He is the one by whom justice has been appeased. Justice has been appeased because Christ has turned away God's wrath by being mercy for us. He showed mercy on us by being us for us. What do I mean by that? As our substitute. Jesus showed us mercy by doing something that we could not do. That's what mercy is, right? Mercy is giving something to somebody that they... We, we talk about grace and mercy, and we see grace is, is a unmerited favor, something that we didn't deserve. But mercy is showing something to somebody that they 
can't do on their own. God showed us mercy in the fact that we were lawbreakers and couldn't obey His commands. So God showed us mercy, and the way He showed us mercy was by sending His Son to be the law fulfiller for us. See, Jesus was the intercessor. He was the go-between. He was the mediator. He was the pure block of gold between the law that was broken and the God that was holy. Jesus in mercy upon us. He showed us mercy. He had compassion upon whom He would have compassion and mercy upon whom He would have mercy. He showed mercy to His elect by becoming the law fulfiller for the law breaker. But He also showed mercy in the fact that He became the sin bearer for the sin enactor. We were the sinner and He became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. He was the go-between. He showed mercy. We deserve death, but He showed mercy. He was merciful for, to us by becoming us in our place. And therefore, He died. That's propitiation. God is satisfied... And His satisfaction is never in you or me. His satisfaction is always in the Son. It's always in Christ Jesus and His work. God is not satisfied with Mike and His ministry. Mike and His perseverance. Mike and His duty. Mike and His accountability. God is never satisfied with anything that Mike does. There's only one thing that God is satisfied with, and that is the work of Christ. That's what. That's the only thing. He's not satisfied with the work of Christ in Mike, and therefore Mike is now satisfying God. That's not the gospel either. The gospel is totally Christ. God is satisfied with the objective work of Christ outside of all of God's elect. Christ doing the work on behalf of His people in Himself, within Himself, His actual obedience to God, His actual death on the cross, all of that is what God is satisfied with. He is never satisfied with one inkling of anything that anyone else ever does. And the only reason that we, as I said before, enter in hearing good and faithful servant is because we are in Christ Jesus, our head, who comes in before us. The Bible says whenever He opens up the gate, He leads them in. He goes before them. When we come into the gate, our shepherd goes in before us, and our shepherd is the one who announces to everyone, here comes the faithful. Why? Because He was faithful. We are faithful because He is faithful. Are we actually faithful? Well, if any of us are honest with each other, we know we are not faithful, but we are called faithful. Are we righteous? No, none of us are righteous, but we're called righteous. We're reckoned as righteous. We're declared righteous. Why? Because our head is righteous. Our mediator is righteous. 
Our intercessor is righteous. He, our substitute, <coughs> is righteous. Therefore, we are righteous. Now there's a couple more places in Scripture, and we'll look at these briefly, <coughs> that we see this word. Look, if you would, in... Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let, let, let me show you what I just was talking about. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. How God has set Christ as a propitiation for our sins. How has God done that? Well, number one, one of the ways that God has um, set Christ up as our propitiation is he set forth him to be the propitiation through uh, throughout eternity and the eternal purposes of God. But look, if you would, in Acts chapter 1, or one, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. We'll start in verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers. Now what's he talking about there? You've not been uh, redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or your vain way of life, your vain walk. What's he talking about? These are religious people. People who, who think by their good works that they are that they are satisfying God, that they are pleasing God, that God is satisfied with their good works, <clears throat> their religious works. That's what what he's calling silver and gold. Okay? And the word conversation there isn't talking about your speech, but it's talking about your way of life or your walk. He says, For as much as ye uh, for as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of the fathers. <laughs> Okay, so that religious activity that you receive from your, from your, you know, religious upbringing, that isn't what's going to redeem you. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for you. So Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be what? A lamb without spot or blemish. To be the redeemer through blood. So how was Christ set up to be the, our propitiation, or our appeasement, our satisfaction? By being the lamb before the foundation of the world. In, uh, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 we see this found. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. <clears throat> it says, Him, speaking of Christ, Him being delivered, this was right, this was, this is Peter giving the account of Christ being taken and tried and crucified. He said, Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. <clears throat> so here we see that Christ was set up uh, or set forth as the propitiation for our sins 
by the determinate counsel of God. God had already determined for the foundation of the world that Christ would by wicked hands be taken and crucified. So God had already, before anything, before we were born, before he created one atom in this earth, had already determined that Christ was going to be our mediator, our appeasement. Oh, how could he have done that? There was no sin yet. How could he have done that when there was no sin? Because God, before the foundation of the world, had purposed to save a people from sin. Therefore, he had purposed that sin would enter into the world. And he did that by one man, Adam. Now, you can call me or call my theology, whatever you want. But the Bible clearly, plainly says that God did that. By the determinate counsel of God determined that Christ would die for sins, for sinners, and by sinning hands be crucified. So if God determined all that, that means God determined and it was his purpose that sin exists and sin come into the world. If he, if he determined that sin would come into the world, he had to have determined how sin would come into the world. And if he determined how sin would come into the world, then he had to have made a man in which sin could reside and come into the world. Because we find that sin comes whenever we, by our own lust, turn and, and commit sin. So he had to create a man in which that could happen. <clears throat> that man was the first Adam. But God also, before the foundation of the world, predetermined not only a sinful Adam, he predetermined a sinless second Adam. The second Adam, who wasn't of the earth earthy, who wasn't natural, and could not keep the things of God, or believe the things of God. But he was the second Adam, the one who was from heaven, the one who was pure and perfect and righteous and holy, the one who obeyed, not the one who disobeyed, but the one who obeyed. In the flesh, we are from our father, the first Adam. But who we are in the spirit, who we truly are, is in Christ Jesus who is our head, who is sinless and undefiled. Therefore, we are sinless and undefiled. Why? Because His seed remains in us. We are His seed, and He is sinless and undefiled. Therefore, we are sinless and undefiled, but not in our flesh, only in the Spirit. And so God predetermined these things. He determined Christ to be our mediator, our substitute, our head. Not our head is in the top of our body. Our head is in our leader. Our head is in the one who is over us, in authority. Our head is in the one who is our representative. Okay? That's what that word means. And that was determined by the determinate counsel of God before anything happened. Look at chapter 4 of Acts, verse 28. This is that same thing is reiterated 
verse, starting in verse uh, um, 26. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. What is this talking about? This is talking about what God had determined beforehand. What did God determine beforehand to do? That Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel who were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be done. So Christ being taken by wicked hands and every lash that he got on his back, every smite that he got on his face or head or wherever that they hit him, every beard that was every hair of beard that was plucked out, every stab of thorn that was in his the, the crown of thorn that was stabbed upon his head, every nail, every spit, everything that was done was determined by God to be done. So that God would be satisfied. You say, well, wait a minute. You mean God wanted all that sin, sinning against Christ? Wouldn't that make God to be the author of sin? That's not even the question. That's not even, that's not even in, uh, there's no, no issue of that in the Bible anywhere. The Bible doesn't ever say God is not the author of sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. That is made up by theologians in creeds and confessions. Why that is an argument among the people of God is, is, is just a mystery to me. Making up arguments and disfellowshipping people because of an argument that isn't even there in the Scripture. When the Bible clearly says that God determined what wicked hands were going to do. He determined that. He didn't just foreordain it. He determined it before the foundation of the world. Every action that would take place, God determined that action. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 53, again, it says that God was pleased to bruise him. Meaning that it was the pleasure of God. Not that God laughed and joked, ha, 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 look at him getting hit. It meant that that was God's will, that was God's desire, that Christ be bruised, that Christ be crucified, that he be taken by wicked hands, and with wicked hands all that wicked take place, that pleased the Lord, meaning that that was what God determined beforehand, to be the sacrifice, to be the appeasement of his wrath. That's why he rejoiced in the fact. That's why Jesus, why he despised the shame of the cross, the Bible says that he counted it joy, and that he set his face like a flint to the cross, and he went to the cross in, in joy, knowing that the outcome of what the cross was about to do was a promise of God that cannot be broken and that all for whom he died would be returned, reconciled, atoned, appeased, satisfied of the Father. God would be satisfied. God sent forth his Son to be our propitiation and all the promises, all the prophecies, all the pictures of the Old Testament. I mean, just I, I listed off some down here. 
He's the seed of the woman that was promised in, in, in Genesis. He's the, uh, he's the, uh, paschal lamb that's, that's shown in the atonement sacrifice. Whenever Moses held up that brazen serpent in the wilderness and, and God told him, make, make a serpent, put it upon a stick and everyone who looks to that serpent, they'll live and everybody that does it, they're gonna die. Guess what? Christ is that brazen serpent. In the, in the Old Testament, the morning and the evening sacrifice, guess who that was? That's Christ. He's the appeasement. He's the propitiation. Every one of the prophets said that there's going to be a substitute who's going to come for us. He was the fulfillment of that. So Christ is the propitiation. That's the second thing we find. And the third thing that we see, how God has set forth Christ as a propitiation, is that He came in human flesh. He was made of a woman. He was made under the law. Um, and so He was set forth to be our propitiation um, in human flesh. Now, there's two other places in Scripture that speaks of this word propitiation. And we'll, and we'll look at them. 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John. Chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 John, the epistle of John, 1 John. Not the gospel of John, but the epistles of John towards the back of the book. Getting close to Revelation. 1 John, chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for the whole world, or for the sins of the whole world. Now, at this point, I might need to make a side note here to explain some things within the context of Scripture. People can rip this verse out of its context of the whole of Scripture and say, nana, nana, boo-boo, there you go, sovereign gracer. Here's free will. Here is universal atonement. Jesus has been the propitiation for the whole world's sin. Therefore, we have to accept it. Right? So Jesus died for everybody. It says right here, He was a propitiation for our sins, but not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat> well, let me ask you a couple of things to think about. Number one, is not the ones that He's writing to part of the world? If you say, He died for the sins of the whole world, but not just for the whole world, but for us also. You could say that backwards, right? Well, are we not part of the whole world? Why didn't he just say for the sins of the whole world? Why was there a distinction made for not only us, but for the sins of the whole world? Because by this time when John was writing, Paul had already began his ministry among the Gentiles. <laughs> So why was he why was he making the distinction here 
between he has died for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Aren't we part of the whole world? Why make that distinction? Well, because again, John primarily was preaching and, and teaching and the pastor among the Hebrews, among the Israelites, among the Jews, who again, the thought of their mind was that salvation was only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. So we're still in a period here where Paul, even though his ministry to the Gentiles had gone out far and wide, even though the apostles had met with Paul and they had already hashed out the fact that God is taking the gospel out to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are being saved just like the Jews were being saved. There were many, many scattered Jews who still did not understand that or know that. So it was part of their gospel to make sure that they knew that Christ's death was for an elect people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now we see that throughout Scripture. The Scripture is very clear that Christ's death is a particular death. That it was only for a particular people. It wasn't for everybody in the world. It was only for His people, His elect. All that the Father had given Him. We know that the Scripture is very clear that not everybody will be saved. If Christ died for everybody, then everybody would be saved. That's what we're talking about today. Satisfaction. That's what I was meaning by my introduction whenever I said, not only is, does, is God satisfied legally, but God must also be satisfied in application. If Christ died for these people, then these people must be brought back to God. And if they are not brought back to God, then Christ is to bear the blame. It'll be His fault because He was termed Jesus, Savior. He was sent to save His people from their sin. If He died, and if you say that He died for all people, then that means that all people were His. Because Jesus was sent to die for His people. Therefore, if everybody in the world that has ever lived was His people... God sent Jesus to die for His people and that Jesus has already in the covenant of God said, if I go, I will bring them back. And if I don't, I will be to blame. Now, do we have a failure as a Savior? Did Jesus fail? No, I have kept all that you have given me. I have lost not one. All that the Father has given me shall come. <laughs> so brethren, we are very clear in Scripture that Christ did not die for every man, otherwise every man will be saved. Why? Because the death of Christ is the satisfaction of God. And if God is satisfied with the, with the person for whom Christ died, then that means there is now no wrath. That's what propitiation is all about. No wrath. There is no more wrath. There is no wrath to contend for. I have been propitiated and shown mercy. If Christ died for every man, then every man has no wrath upon him, but only mercy. 
And Jesus is their mercy seat. Therefore, everything that Jesus has done, complete obedience to God, has been given to them. Therefore, they can enter in good and faithful servant. But yet we are told that there are going to be many on that day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not in Your name cast out devils and demons? And did we not do all these wonderful, great, mighty works in Your name? And He says, Depart from Me, you doers of iniquity, for I never knew You. If Jesus died for everybody, there would never be anybody in that category because Jesus knew everyone whom God had sent Him to die for because He says, I know my sheep and I die for my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. If we are of the sheep, if everybody is of the sheep, then Jesus died for everybody and therefore everybody will be brought in because the great shepherd of the sheep says, I have lost none, I will bring them all in and I will go before them. Now he was a propitiation. He was an intercessor. He was a mediator. He was a substitute, but it was for his people. And God was satisfied with his work Therefore, God is satisfied with His people. Therefore, everyone for whom Christ died will be brought back to the Father. We are not ones who are going to miss out on anything. And so He says here, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for who? The sins of the whole world. It's not just for the Jews' sins. It's for the Gentiles. It's for those people and those people and those people and those people and those people, the elect out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what God was talking about. Those who are from all nations elected of God. And then look while you're there in 1 John chapter 4. We basically see the same thing. 1 John chapter 4. It says, In this was manifest, verse 9, In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now there again, that's why I say, God, if there is satisfaction legally, there will be satisfaction applicably. Okay? It says right here that in this was manifested the love of God towards us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Why? That we might live through Him. If Jesus was sent for every person, then every person is going to live through Him. But yet we find that there are not going to be people who are going to live through Him. He says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Christ to be the appeasement of our sins. He sent Christ to be the mercy seat for our sins. 
the place where God would come and commune and the blood would be sprinkled and that redemption would take place was there in the mercy seat, in the place of mercy. And he said that was for his people. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If Christ was a propitiation for everybody's sins, guess what? Then that means their sins have been appeased. God's wrath has been turned away. Mercy has been granted. Grace has been provided. Salvation ensues. Salvation is to follow. And salvation doesn't just start with being told legally, you're now no longer guilty, but it ends up with being rose from the dead, given a new body, and eternally being with Christ Jesus. That's the culmination of salvation. That's the uh, final part of our salvation is that we will put off this flesh of sin and we will put on a perfect body and we will live with Him forever. Brother, propitiation is God being satisfied not only with the work of Christ, but the accomplishment that Christ's death and life and death accomplished. Everything that He accomplished, Christ being satisfied, God being satisfied, and therefore, in that satisfaction, God also receiving the just reward for sending His Son. He sent His Son that we might live through Him. He didn't send His Son that some might be lost. He sent Him to be the propitiation. The only way I can commune with them is for you to go on their behalf. And if you go on their behalf, I promise I will meet you above the mercy seat. Brethren, listen, that's the promise of God. There's a promise of God that every person for whom Christ propitiates... God is going to commune at the mercy. He's not waiting for you to accept it. He's not waiting for you to do something for it. He has given it to you in Christ Jesus. Will He bring you to the knowledge of that? Yes, He will. He'll give you faith. He'll give you repentance. He will give you those internal works of God that causes you to know of your salvation and all will come to Him. But brother, He doesn't do that for everybody. He only does that for His people. But praise the Lord. He doesn't expect us to do anything to get it because if He did, we would still be found below the mercy seat. We'd be found breaking the law of God and being unworthy. Because of His great love that He sent Christ to be our propitiation. So we praise the Lord for His work of propitiation. We praise the Lord for the doctrine of propitiation. We preach Christ's propitiation because without it, we would have no communion with the Lord. Alright, does anybody have any questions or any comments? I'm going to go ahead and announce now, it's not this coming Sunday, but the next Sunday, the 29th, January the 29th. We will not be here being service. I'll be uh, preaching at... Uh, Coweta Baptist Church in Coweta, Oklahoma. They've asked me to come and 
preach for them uh, there. So we will be gone on the 29th. So we'll be here next week, but the week after that we'll be gone. So um, now they stream their services on Facebook. Uh, you can Google them or look for them. And I think it's on YouTube also. Do they stream on YouTube also? Okay, you can find them, Coweta Baptist Church. Uh, if you want to uh, follow that on live stream, uh, Lori may try to maybe live stream on ours from there as well. We'll just kind of see how that goes. But uh, anyway, that's the 20, 29th, and I'll be there all day. We're, we'll be there for their morning morning and evening services. So we won't be here. All right? All right, anybody else got anything? Father, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for your grace and mercy that you give us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the propitiation that's in him. We thank you for the promises of God to meet and commune with your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that everything is because of him. We give him honor and glory and praise today. And may you be with us now as we leave this place, and that you continue to keep us in the faith. You might give us safety, Lord, until we meet again. And we pray, Lord, that you might always give us an answer, or give us the words and the and the uh, and the scriptures and the reason for the hope that lies within us. If any man uh, asks a question uh, about that, Lord, that we might always uh, look to Christ Jesus, and that we might always preach Him and Him crucified. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.